We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, as you may know. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order because we want to see the Jesus of the Bible for ourselves. We don't want pop culture Jesus. We don't want secondhand Jesus. We want to see him for ourselves in his word and hear his own words for ourselves. And today is going to be one of those messages where you might find yourself saying, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I heard about growing up. Because Jesus gets angry about some stuff, and Jesus is going to get angry about some stuff today. Last week, we got a crash course in what we call spiritual warfare, which was taught and modeled by Jesus himself, and we learned that God is greater, more powerful, stronger than anything or anyone. There's no comparison between the power of God and the power of Satan. God has no equal. He has no rival. And we learned that the believer's strategy for spiritual warfare is simply stay Real close to Jesus. So this week, Jesus is going to get into it with the Pharisees and the religious legal experts over something he's very passionate about. Jesus is incredibly passionate about how his heavenly father is represented by those on the earth who claim to represent him. So remember where we left off last week. Jesus has dramatically healed a person who had been made mute, unable to speak by demonic possession. This was a miracle that people had never seen before. Nobody else had been able to do. And yet the response of some in the crowd was to claim that Jesus was doing these miracles by the power of Satan. And they said, if you're really Messiah, if you're really the Son of God, then do something truly spectacular. Give us a sign of epic proportions. And Jesus responded, the only sign they would receive was the sign of Jonah. Jesus would be dead in the ground for three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights before returning to the land of the living. So remember that chapters and verses were only added to the Bible about a thousand years after the time of Christ. So it was just one flowing story and today just picks up right where last week left off. No time has passed, it's the same day, the same moment. He's still speaking to the crowd. Some of the crowd are amazed by what they've seen Jesus do. These religious experts and authorities are still there sort of sparring with Jesus. Jesus is going to simultaneously invite these men to recognize who he is while also warning them of the danger of missing who he is. So let's jump into the text. We're in Luke 11, verse 33. Jesus says, no one, when he's lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. Jesus himself said in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. You see, Jesus didn't minister in secret. To see Jesus at this time, you didn't have to go to a specific secret place and know a specific secret knock and a specific secret handshake to find him. He wasn't hidden or obscured. He was out in public doing miracles that verified that he really was who he claimed to be the Son of God, Messiah in the flesh. And soon his death and resurrection publicly would remove all doubt of exactly who he really was. And that's the point Jesus is making here. He is the lamp, he's the light of the world, and he put himself on display so that all who desire the light of life could come to him. So what's the problem? Why don't people get it? Have you ever wondered how how do these Pharisees stand right in front of him, see the miracle, hear the words of Jesus, the same words that brought you and I into a saving relationship with him, and come to the conclusion 
that he's empowered by Satan. How does that happen? Why are people then and now unable to see Jesus? Well, Jesus explains in verse 34, the lamp of the body is the eye. Jesus goes on to tell us, therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. When your eyes are clear, that word good means clear, it means healthy, it means focused. So when your eyes are all of those things, you can see clearly, you can perceive things accurately. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. When your eyes are clouded, when they're unhealthy, when they're not capable or willing to focus on anything, you can't perceive anything accurately. The brightest lamp can do nothing for a blind man. The issue is not that the lamp is not bright enough or obvious enough. The issue is not the light. The issue is the man's eyes. They're unhealthy. They're clouded. They're unfocused. They're unable to see. As John the Apostle wrote in his gospel, one of the most sad verses in the whole Bible, John 3, he wrote this, light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. The reason people don't believe in Jesus is because they can't see Jesus because they prefer the darkness. They prefer the darkness. We prefer to have things foggy, obtuse, cloudy, shrouded in shadows because then we can tell ourselves that we are actually seeing whatever we want to see. Oh yeah, I'm a spiritual person. I've got my own beliefs. I live by a code that seems right to me. It's like ending up on a blind date with someone you don't find attractive at all. Perhaps if you move to a really dimly lit corner of the restaurant, half of you guys are thinking of that Seinfeld episode right now. You go to a really dimly lit corner of the restaurant and and you squint and you cross your eyes. You can almost convince yourself that the person you're on a date with is really good looking. And that's what we love to do with our spirituality. We have a conscience placed in us by God. We have the Holy Spirit working on us to convict us of sin and shine a light on the truth. But instead of being grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit, we choose to willingly squint our spiritual eyes, seek out a a darker environment, and we convince ourselves, yeah, yeah, this is the right way. Everything looks good. Deep down we know that if the light were to really shine on our lives, we would see things clearly. We would have to deal with who we really are. We'd have to deal with our sin and our wickedness, and so we seek out the darkness. It's more comfortable. And we become accustomed to it until we can't see anything clearly anymore. Until we find ourselves mocking those who claim to have seen the light of Jesus. You fools, there's no light. There's no God. You're the idiots who can't see. The Bible says... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Light came into the world, but men preferred the darkness. And we see examples of this all the time. It's the very best way I can describe it is we squint and and we seek out darkness so that we can claim that, yeah, what I'm seeing is the way. This is the way. Because when you're looking in a room of shadows, you can convince yourself that there's anything in there. Verse 35 says, therefore, take heed, be careful, that the light, light should really be in quotations, which is in you, is not in reality, darkness. So here's the warning. Be careful that what you think is light, what you think is intellectual enlightenment, 
what you think is scientific brilliance, what you think is philosophical ascent, be careful that what you think is light is not in reality darkness. A poignant warning to the unbelieving men that Jesus was addressing and a warning that we would be wise to heed as well today. Take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Satan, known as the prince of darkness, comes masquerading as a what? Angel of light. Light. There's a better way, the true light, real enlightenment, genuine brilliance, authentic ascension in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. If you really do seek the truth, If you're willing to let the light of the truth shine on your life and show you Jesus, let you see him clearly, then he, the light of the world, will bring the light of life into every area of your life. You'll see things clearly. But it starts with seeing yourself clearly. And many of us don't want to do that. Make a note of this. Jesus is the only true enlightenment. Jesus is the only true enlightenment. Verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So we went in and sat down to eat. If you were here last week, you'll realize this seems kind of strange. So he's just had a very intense and awkward back and forth with the Pharisees, where among other things, they've accused him of being in league with Satan. And now they're inviting him over for lunch. Why would they do that? Well, in that culture at that time, this was standard hospitality. If you were a visiting rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher of the scriptures, he was visiting their town, and if you had a visiting rabbi and you were a Pharisee, you had to ask him over to your house for a meal after synagogue, after he had taught. So he's doing this very reluctantly. It's an insincere invite. It's like, you want to come over and have something to eat? And the Pharisee's thinking, surely Jesus is going to say, you know, Since you think I'm possessed by the devil, it seems like we're not on the same page with some really big stuff, so let's just call it a day. But Jesus doesn't do that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus accepts the invitation because there's more that his heavenly Father wants him to say to these Pharisees. Also, parenthetically, we notice that in the Gospels, Jesus never turns down food. Ever. He never turns down food. Jesus is a foodie. There's a theological position for that. Verse 38. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he, Jesus, had not first washed before dinner. This is not hygienic washing we're talking about because my young boys are going to listen to this message and I don't want them to go, I knew this whole hygiene thing was a scam. It's right there in the Bible. Jesus didn't even wash his hands. How can you ask me to do it? It's not hygienic washing we're talking about but rather what Mark told us about in his gospel where he said, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God had given instructions on hand washing to the high priest to do only a couple of times a year during special ceremonies and sacrifices. The idea is that the priest would go through this head-to-toe ritualistic washing, and it was a picture of how pure and holy God is and how not pure and holy man is, how we are defiled by sin. It was a living picture. So somewhere along the line, the Pharisees read this, and they said, you know, if this is good enough for the high priest, who's the most important spiritual position in our religious hierarchy, then... This should be something that anyone who's really serious about spirituality should do. So let's make this a thing. 
And for serious Pharisees, it became a standard pre-meal ritual, despite the fact that it wasn't required by the law of God and really didn't accomplish anything other than making them feel spiritually superior to other people. Here's the biggest problem. You can write this on your outline. The Pharisees had made their traditions as important as Scripture. They had made their traditions as important as Scripture. When Peter the Apostle wrote about this sort of thing, he termed their practices aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Jesus, not a man who had time for aimless conduct or meaningless rituals, ignored these practices, much to the shock of his Pharisaic host. And I think this can happen very easily in our lives if we're not careful. We might read that and go, those guys are idiots. That's so stupid. But here's what happens in our lives sometimes. The Lord will give us a conviction. The Holy Spirit will give us a conviction about something that is not in the Bible. It's something he's calling us to do individually. Maybe something he's calling us to do or something he's not calling us to do and it's for us individually and that's okay. However, it becomes legalism whenever we say, well, if God asks me to do this, then you all need to do it too if you're serious about the Lord. Paul dealt with this issue, didn't he, in the Corinthian church where the only place you could buy meat in the city of Corinth was at the market and all the meat in the market came from animals that had been sacrificed to pagan gods in the city. And then they'd sell the dead carcass meat in the market. And some believers were saying, I I can't do this. I gotta be a vegetarian because I can't eat meat that has anything to do with sacrifices to pagan gods. And other believers were saying, dude, it's, it's just meat. It's just meat. All meat is glorious. That's my position. They said it's not a big deal where it, where it comes from. It's just meat. And Paul's advice was, listen, whatever your conviction is under the Holy Spirit, you need to go with that. And if you actually study that text, you'll find that those who were offended by where the meat came from, it's implied that they actually had the weaker, less mature faith than those who didn't have an issue with it. Paul says, so just, just do what the Holy Spirit calls you to do in this area. It's a gray area. You're accountable to what the Holy Spirit's called you to do, but just be sensitive of other people. If you're having someone over for dinner who has an issue with this, don't serve the meat. Just be considerate of one another. The Pharisees and lawyers weren't doing that. They had personal convictions that they put on everyone else, and those things quickly became a massive burden to people. So we have to be very careful that we don't put our extra-biblical, that means things that aren't in the Bible, our extra-biblical convictions on other people. It's so much easier than we think to do that. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I really want us to understand how easily this can happen. We find something the Bible doesn't address, but we're like, but it should. So we're going to begin to judge people by a conviction we have or a tradition we've been raised in. We're going to help God out and enforce this. I had a couple who'd been emailing me and and they'd been saying, hey, we had a a real issue with Halloween. And I said, okay, okay, that's fine. I understand that. I'm I'm not necessarily comfortable with it either. And then they said, well, you know, as we we heard your messages about the origins of Christmas, we became uncomfortable with Christmas as well. And I said, well, you know, if that's your conviction, uh, that's fine. You go with that. And then they said, well, well, how can any Christian, though, celebrate Christmas knowing the, the pagan origins that date back to Babylon and Semiramis and all of this sort of stuff? And they were getting really forceful about this. And I had to tell them, listen, do you understand that five or six of the months of the year are named after Roman gods? Are you going to therefore reject the Greco-Roman calendar? Or are you going to be inconsistent? 
and admit that you just have a conviction about this one thing. Because if the issue is paganism and you're not gonna be a hypocrite, then you gotta stop being involved with anything that has anything to do with pagan origins. You can go on the Hebrew calendar, do something like that, but you're not gonna do that because you have a conviction about this one thing and you need to be faithful to that conviction, but don't put it on anybody else. Perhaps the best example still in the modern day is alcohol. Bible makes it very clear. Jesus drank, the disciples drank, they drank socially at weddings. The Bible's very clear, don't be mastered by anything, don't be addicted to anything, nothing in extreme excess, don't be characterized by it. But I still find all the time pastors or believers who will say, well, well, you know, the reason I don't drink is I, I just wanna go above and beyond. Here's what's underneath that. They're saying, I, I know I'm allowed to, but because I'm really serious about my spirituality, I'm not gonna drink because that's what really serious spiritual people do. That's a problem. If you don't wanna drink for health reasons, if you don't like it, that's cool. But if the reason that you don't drink is because you think that puts you on a higher spiritual plane than somebody, now there's a problem. Because if that's your belief, there's no way that you're not judging those who don't have that same conviction. It's impossible. We have to be so careful we don't put our extra biblical convictions onto other people. We still do it today. Jesus knew the Pharisee was watching and judging him for not following their rituals. So Jesus, as is his custom, uses his world-famous tact to address the subject. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, you fools. Did he who not made the outside make the inside also? The definition of a fool is someone who lacks understanding, and indeed, the term was not insulting in this case, but very appropriate. You're only concerned with the outward appearance and being clean on the outside. Don't you realize that the same God you claim to be trying to impress also made the inside of a man, the heart and soul? And don't you think he also cares about what's going on in there? You try to make your outside spotless while completely ignoring the sorry state of your soul, which is full of greed and wickedness. Imagine going to a restaurant and ordering a, a nice glass of white wine and it shows up and there's fingerprint smudges all over the outside of the glass. Not only that, but sitting on the bottom of the glass, upside down, is a dead cockroach. And you go, Ex excuse me, excuse me, waiter, we, we gotta do something about this. And the waiter says, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. You know, takes out his napkin and wipes the outside of the glass spotless. And you go, thank you very much. And you go back to your meal. That would be insane because there's still a dead cockroach in the bottom of the glass. That's what Jesus says. He says, you fools, you fools. You only care about the outside appearance as though there's no problem with your inward spirit. It's ugly in there, guys. Verse 41, but rather give alms of such things, which really means give alms of, from what is inside as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want you to give to the poor to try and make your outside clean. I want you to give to the poor because there's something good on the inside of you that's overflowing to the outside of you. If you would instead focus on being clean on the inside of your soul, right with the Lord on a spiritual level, then everything on the outside would be clean. 
You wouldn't need to do any special washings or anything like that. Jesus is saying that righteousness, real holiness, real purity, real cleanness flows from the inside of a man out. Holiness begins in the soul and makes its way out. Unlike what they were doing, which was ignoring the soul and polishing the outside appearance as though the outward can work its way inward. If I just clean up my outside, then my heart and my soul and my spirit will fix themselves. It never works that way. Make a note of this. Righteousness flows from the inside to the outside of a man. Righteousness flows from the inside to the outside of a man. Just as we talked about a few weeks ago, we don't need reformation. We need regeneration. We don't need to be cleaned up on the outside. We need to be made something new on the inside. That's why when someone comes to the Lord, we don't immediately get on top of them and say, every single thing in your life needs to change right now. Because our goal is not that they would be a good person. Our goal is that they would be full of the Holy Spirit and that would spread into every area of their life. And that takes time, that takes years. You're a liar if you're gonna say you're not in that same process too. I am, I'm still waiting for it to fully manifest on the outside of me. I have a date for when that's gonna happen, the moment after I die, but the process continues while I am alive. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice in the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. This is what Jesus is talking about. These guys were so determined to look righteous. Every now and then they would go into their garden. They would have their herbs growing and they would go up to an herb plant with their little snips and they'd snip the first leaf off and go one, two, three. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Snip. One. And then they would come to the temple with their little pouch. Here is the tithe from my garden because the first of everything belongs to the Lord. And they would wait while people went, wow, that guy is so spiritual. I'd imagine the high priest goes, thanks, and goes in the back room and puts it on his salad because what else are you going to do with that? But this is what's going on. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you guys are wrong to tithe. He says their failure, you can make a note of this, their failure is that they followed the law to the smallest detail, but they missed the heart of the law. They followed the law to the smallest detail, but they missed the heart of the law. They missed what it was all about. The whole point, what did Jesus say and every other rabbi teach was the greatest commandments, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And what did Jesus say was the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That was the heart of the law and Jesus says you took care of all the tiny details, like tithing out of your herb garden, but you pass by loving God and loving justice. You didn't love God, you didn't love your neighbor, you didn't care about justice, you didn't care about what was right. Micah 6.8, a phenomenal verse to memorize. This is all about what it means to be a believer. It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These guys missed it. They missed the whole point. They were majoring on the minors. 
And by the way, while we're here, I would be remiss not to address something. Because one of the things that you'll hear people say you don't want to tithe is, you know, tithing's not anywhere in the New Testament. But I want you to notice what Jesus says here about the Pharisees tithing. He says, you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you, and then what does it say? Ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't say stop tithing and instead focus on loving God. He says keep tithing as you are, but love God and love justice. Right here in the Gospels, Jesus explicitly affirms the practice of tithing because while it is possible to give without loving, it is impossible to love without giving. In that culture, people were tithing and honoring God with their finances, but they were missing love and mercy. They were missing it. My observation would be that in our culture, most believers have that reverse. The, the North American church in general is really good. We're doing a good job at championing love and mercy around the world, getting more serious about justice issues and modern day slavery and things like that. But the church is generally failing to honor God with their finances. The most recent stat I could find was from 2012. And it said that in Canada, the average Christian, not the average church attender, the average Christian believer, gives 2.43% of their income to the Lord. In other words, and this blew my mind, in other words, if all believers were tithing, every North American church would have four times the income it currently does. Can you imagine what the church could do with that money? The church could fund adoptions for anybody who was willing. Anybody just said, I'll, I'll take a kid from China. Here's all the money you need. Go do it. Let's adopt every orphan we can. Money's no issue. You need a bigger house to house these kids, we'll make it happen, whatever we need to do. We could fund any student who wanted to go on a missions trip and have their lives changed. We could help out single moms and widows. We could have retreat cabins where people go to pray and seek the Lord just to get away and hear from him for a couple of days. We could respond to emergency needs in places like Syria like that. No special building funds, no special offerings, nothing, just would have the resources to respond where it's needed to the global church. While it's possible to give without loving, it's not possible to love without giving. And not just the church, but our whole culture in general really fails to understand this because we live in a culture that thinks you can make a difference on the other side of the world by using a hashtag. You can't, it doesn't mean anything. Jesus wanted their tithing to be an outward expression of their inward love for the Lord, not something done in an attempt to polish the outside appearance. Well, I love that because what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I don't need your money. You're not accomplishing the task when you give the 10%. It's not a box you can check and I go, God goes, okay, now I'm happy because now my budget is fulfilled. God's saying, I wanted you to give from the inside of who you are because you love me and you trust me and you want to honor me first. So you can give me all the money in the world, but if there's no love behind it, it's meaningless. It's hollow. It's empty. He says, I want your heart and I want everything you do for me to come out of that, out of your love for me. Verse 43, Jesus is just rolling here. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor, and greetings in the marketplaces. So they would have when synagogue, when it was their Saturday, their church day, they would have special reserved seating denoted by rank. So when you sat in a certain seat, it showed how important you were. The, 
the better your rank, the better the seat you got. It would be like if you came to church and our front row was lazy boy recliners. And there was like a red velvet rope in front of it and a hanging sign that said for new hope elders only. And you're like, those guys are getting served refreshments during the message. Like what is going on? That's what was going on in their synagogues. And then they would have special greetings for the Pharisees based upon rank, which would be like me saying, hey guys, here's what's gonna happen now. Every time I walk into a room, you guys are gonna stand and clap because I'm the pastor and that's what we do. And that's what these guys were doing. That's what was going on. Now, I wanna point this out. There's nothing wrong with honor. Honor is a good thing. You know, if you're a parent, the Bible says you are commanded to teach your children how to honor you. You are commanded to do that. We gotta know how to honor people, that's important. But what's not okay is coveting honor from other people and coveting the admiration of man. See, it's okay if someone comes to me, even as a pastor, and says, man, thank you for that message. You know what I learned early on? Don't be an idiot and go, it's not me. It's the Lord. As though the person doesn't know that. You understand, they're just saying, hey, thanks for the work you do in prepping that, that blessed me. So when that happens, I say thank you, it's my pleasure to do that. That's okay, man, that's fine. What's not okay is if I walk around after the service and go, so uh, what'd you guys think of the teaching today? Pretty good stuff, right? More, more, more. That's, that's not okay, there's a big, big difference there. Honor is okay, coveting the honor, that's not okay. And Jesus says, you guys, you love, you live for that stuff. You live for the special seats. You live for the special greetings. You live for the honor. That's what motivates you, not your love for the Lord. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, this is a lot of woe. For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. See, at this time in Israel, they, they would have grave markers that would often just be slabs of stone on the ground and they would do their best to paint something on them, but not everybody had access to chisel out an inscription. And so over time, the markings would wear off and people as they were walking to Jerusalem, especially for the feasts, might see, oh, there, there's a concrete slab that I can go sit down on, a stone slab, and I can rest. But that slab would actually be someone's grave. And under Jewish law at the time, if you came that close to someone who had died, the dead body would defile you, would make you spiritually unclean. And you would have to go all the way to Jerusalem, make a special sacrifice to be made clean again. So imagine if this is happening when you're on your way back from Jerusalem. Walk two days, you're almost home, stop to rest, someone comes by and says, it's a grave. Ah, you gotta go all the way back to Jerusalem now. So what they would do Every time it got close to a feast is they would whitewash them. They'd paint them with this bright white substance that would make it real obvious this is a grave. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you guys, all your laws with no heart and soul behind them, all your empty practices, you're like unmarked graves. And everyone who comes close to you, everyone who walks with you, everyone who does life with you becomes infected and they don't even know it. What a contrast. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. But he tells these Pharisees and lawyers, the legalists, that instead of giving life to those who come to them, they're dealers in death. And I'm not exaggerating when I say, Jesus has just been warming up. 
He's about to go off on one of the most intense righteous rants ever recorded. He's completely right in doing this, but this is brutal. For the sake of context, you're going to need to know this for the next verse. A lawyer at this time was a person who read the scriptures, the law of God. That's why he was called a lawyer. And would interpret the laws of God into the present day. So this is what it looks like to follow the laws of God from the Torah, from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all that stuff. This is what it means to follow those laws in our culture today. That's what a lawyer was. And they claimed, like the Pharisees, to represent God. They said, we're the authority. We are the ones who interpret Scripture, and what we say is true is true. Verse 45. I can't figure out what's going through this guy's head when he does this. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, teacher, by saying these things to the Pharisees, you reproach us also. Jesus, when you talk to the Pharisees, we're, we're buddies with them. I don't know if you realize this, but you're offending us too. What does he think is going to happen? Does he think Jesus is going to go, oh my God, I am so sorry. I did not mean to offend anyone. So he says, you know, when you say woe to these Pharisees, you insult us too. Next verse, and he said, well then woe to you too, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Here's why Jesus is so angry with them. They've made serving God, living for God, loving God into a burden. What is supposed to be the most life-giving relationship anyone can have, their relationship with their heavenly father, has been made by these men into a relationship that sucks the life out of people. And Jesus is really, really angry that his heavenly father is being represented that way. So write this down. Jesus was furious that the Pharisees and lawyers had turned relating to his heavenly father into a burden when it was supposed to be life's greatest blessing. They had turned it into a burden when it was supposed to be life's greatest blessing. Just imagine how angry you would be if you found out that your child's school teacher, who they have every day, Monday through Friday, was working every single day to convince your child that you were always angry with them. You're always disappointed with them and you're right on the verge of kicking them out of your family. Can you imagine how angry you would be if you found out that your child's school teacher had been doing that for months and months, years and years? Trying to tell your child that's how your mom feels about you, that's how your dad feels about you. That's why Jesus is so angry here. Because in contrast to the burden they were making serving God, Jesus said of himself, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus keeps going and he says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for indeed they killed them and you build their tombs. So you talk about your fathers and their traditions with such reverence, and you talk about the prophets with such reverence, and you ignore the fact that your fathers are the ones who killed the prophets, all of them. You honor men who don't deserve to be honored and you kill men who should be honored. That's your history. Verse 49, therefore the wisdom of God also said, 
I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall also be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, A to Z. This is not Zechariah the prophet, this is Zechariah the priest. Abel was the first innocent murder victim in the Old Testament, killed in Genesis 4, while Zechariah the priest is the last recorded innocent victim in the Old Testament, murdered in 2 Chronicles 24. And in the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, 2 Chronicles is actually the last book in the Old Testament. So Jesus is referencing the first murder in their Old Testament and the last murder in their Old Testament. And he's saying, you guys are only continuing the same pattern. Jesus is speaking prophetically here and he's pointing to the fact that right then they are working behind the scenes to try and arrange to have Jesus murdered. And this is gonna begin and set off decades and decades of them doing everything they can to kill the followers of Jesus and the apostles of the early church. He says, you're on the same path as your fathers who killed the prophets. And when they are judged by God, your fathers, you'll be standing next to them because you do the same thing. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves and those who were entering in, you hindered. So write this down, the key of knowledge is simply God's word. The key of knowledge is God's word. And Jesus tells them they've taken away the word of God from the people. Now they hadn't done this literally. The text wasn't off limits. It's not like they weren't allowed to read the scrolls, but they had taken away the word of God from the people by elevating themselves in authority above the word of God, then grossly misinterpreting it, making it say things it didn't say, and ignoring the things that it did say. And they'd added thousands of rules that they had invented and were teaching them to people as though they were as important as what was in the scriptures. Jesus' indictment of them is that they're not actually doing what the Bible says. They haven't entered in. And if they come across anyone who's really trying to see what the Bible says for themselves, they hinder them and say, no, you're wrong. We're the ones who know what's going on with the Bible. We will interpret it for you. We have all these laws and the traditions of our Father, and these are the things you need to do. And they would stop anybody who wanted to get to the heart of the Scriptures. They'd say, you don't need to do that. We're here. In the Middle Ages, during the age of the church of Thyatira, for those of you who've gone through Revelation 3 with us, Bibles were literally chained to the pulpit because it was taught that only a priest could understand its contents. In fact, for several centuries, you could be executed for even attempting to read the Bible on your own. And during those dark ages, the Bible was only available in Latin so that it would indeed be unreadable to the common man. I'm so glad I have my own Bible. I'm so glad you have your own Bible if you don't let us give you one and that you can read it and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can understand it. What a blessing. What a blessing. It hasn't always been like that. And yet even today, we need to be careful that we don't hinder those who seek God and his word. And I say that because we can unintentionally get behind ideas like that's really sweet and noble that you want to read the Bible and understand it, but you need to read Greek and Hebrew if you're going to understand the Bible. Otherwise, there's, there's just really no point. Or you need to spend years and years in historical doctorate level study if you're gonna have even the most basic idea of what's going on in the Bible. 
You know how many people fit that description? Probably about one in a million believers. About one in a million. And I don't know about you, but I believe that the Lord knew that. I believe it's not a coincidence that the word of God survived through almost 2,000 years despite passing through the hands of millions and millions of uneducated Christians who just had the scriptures and often nobody to interpret it, just the word of God. Now listen, we deeply value the men and women of God who've been gifted by him to study these things. But we firmly believe that anyone, you and I, that wants to find the Lord, seek him in his word, will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be taught by the word of God. We believe that emphatically. Beware of anyone who adds to the Bible. That's what these guys were doing. But on the flip side, and this is the greater danger, I think, in our day, beware of those who simply don't teach everything that's in the Bible who skip over things. See, they were adding thousands and thousands of things to the Bible. We live in an age where people just love to ignore thousands and thousands of things in the Bible. Like the chapter we're reading right now. You know, angry Jesus is not a good way to grow a church. Ranting about hypocrisy and realizing that it might apply to us. That's not a message people want to hear. I want to hear about love and peace and joy and happiness and all that good stuff. The word of God is complete. So stay away from anyone or any institution that takes away from it or adds to it. Verse 53, and as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him, literally jostle and harass him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. But despite the best efforts of the most brilliant religious minds of the day, they could never, ever catch him in even one lie or one sin. In fact, they would end up crucifying him for the sin of claiming to be the Son of God, which we know in reality was no sin, for he was indeed the Son of God. In conclusion, it matters that we represent God rightly to our kids, to our spouse to our parents, to our extended family, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our neighbors. The Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The Lord is trusting us to be his representatives here on the earth. That's not a burden to be perfect, none of us are. It's a call to remember that we've all been shown grace and mercy and incredible kindness by our God who deals in unfailing love. And all the Lord asks is that we do our best to represent him rightly. If we're gonna take his name, Christian, Christian, he says, hey, represent me rightly. Let people know that I love them. Let people know the truth who are on their way to hell. Love them enough to tell them the truth. But represent me rightly. Don't get caught up in traditions and meaningless rules. Love me and let your life be made beautiful by a goodness and a righteousness that flows from the inside out. If Jesus has been misrepresented to you, maybe you grew up in a church that was legalistic or a church that had its own thing and God was angry and and maybe you went to youth group and youth group was always just a warning. What are you gonna do if you're in an R-rated movie when Jesus comes back? Not see the end of the movie. That's probably what's going to happen. But 
Maybe you grew up in a very, very legalistic environment and God wasn't represented rightly to you. Maybe you grew up in a situation where what you were taught was it was just most important that you be a good person, that you look the right way, you act the right way, you say the right things. Then I believe that the grace of God is at work in your life because you're here. We're going to do our best every chance we get to reveal who God is to you. He's a loving, gracious, merciful Father who loves you and is involved in your everyday life. He cares about you so much. Right now, he is crazy about you. And I pray that somebody's told you this before. Your heavenly Father is crazy about you. He's not saying, let's change this and this and this and this, and then I'll be crazy about you. He loves you. He loves you just the way you are right now. I can't describe in words how much he loves you, but if you will open up his word on your own this week and read it, you will be astounded to discover how much he loves you. The key of knowledge is the word of God, and it's the way to see things clearly, clearly. If you're rejecting what God's word says about anything, And if you're coming up with your own version of truth instead, I encourage you to repent. And I encourage you to repent because I pray that right now the Holy Spirit will shine a light on your life to help you understand that what you've done is you've chosen to squint your spiritual eyes so that you can tell yourself, no, that's okay, that's something right. When it's really something that's gonna lead to devastation and destruction and death in that area of your life. If that's you today, then then repent. Whatever that thing is, whatever that area is, there's nothing worse than not being able to see clearly. You don't want to get comfortable in the darkness. As uncomfortable as it can be to come into the light when you've been in the darkness for a while, man, there is no better place to be because you know that you're seeing things clearly. So let's ask the Lord again today to shine a light on our lives and let's affirm that that's where we want to live in his light. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let's pray together. You know, Jesus is, I love this about the Gospels. It tells us Jesus is and was the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know what your Father in heaven is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus in the Bible. And what we see with Jesus is not a God who gets angry with people who are trying to seek him and find him. We only find a God who gets angry at people who are trying to keep people from coming to his heavenly father. We find Jesus getting angry at men who claim to represent his heavenly father and are telling people that their heavenly father is mad at them. Jesus gets angry at those people. But what we see in Jesus is someone who has time for everybody who wants to know him. What we see in Jesus is someone who loves people where they're at, but loves them too much to leave them where they're at. And says, come with me. I want to take you somewhere better. I want to bring life into every area of your life. But maybe you're in the place where you're rediscovering God. And you've had ideas about God and you're just beginning this morning to realize, you know, I I think I've thought some things about God that might not be accurate. I've had a view of God that might not really be who he is. And you're thinking, is it really possible that he's like that, that he loves me right now, that he's not angry with me, that he just 
wants me to come to him? Is that really possible? I pray that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, every false idea you've ever been fed about who God is and who your heavenly Father is would be absolutely broken down by the grace and the goodness of God. And you would begin to discover the real Jesus, your real Father in heaven who loves you and is crazy about you. Father, I pray that you would help us to represent you rightly. Not to be perfect, not to work on polishing the outside, Lord, but to have the real light of life that comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, working its way to our outside where the world can see it. Lord, help us to represent you rightly to our family, to our spouse, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. Help us to be real ambassadors for you. Help us to make you beautiful to people, God, and represent you rightly. Lord, finally help us to welcome the light of your spirit into our lives. Whatever you want to shine a light on this morning, Lord, help us not to squint or turn away or seek out the shadows, but to say, Lord, shine a light on it. Even if it hurts a bit, I want to see things clearly. Lord, I don't want the light in me to really be darkness. I want to know that I'm headed in the direction of life in every area of my life. Lord, shine a light on that. Just allow the Holy Spirit to do that. You talk to him. You invite him to do that. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.